lifepodcasts.fm. This podcast is a Prime Media Broadcasting production. Journeys with Joanne Joseph. Explore stories, stories from the past and present. Journeys with Joanne Joseph. Then when I opened the book and I saw your dedication to your sister, Basra Farah Hassan, who died in a Taliban attack in 2014, it really changed the frame of mind in which I, I approached the reading of this book. I, it suddenly felt as though there was much more at stake than the analysis of a fictional novel. How present was the murder of your sister in the writing of North of Dawn? Well, it was present in the sense that almost every terrorist killing uh, reminds me of my sister's death. Mm. Times were many years ago when I would look, you know, watching TV or listening to the news, you would hear about some suicide bomber who killed 50 people, 100 people. They were for me statistics. They didn't actually, to be honest with you, they didn't matter. And they didn't matter until I found somebody I knew. And then you began to think about it because it touches you, becomes closer, you become worried and so on and so forth. And then send condolences and then you forget about them. And then you say, well, God has given this person to us. God has come and taken him or her away. But the killing of a sister younger than yourself becomes a completely different uh, thing. And I found uh, that it was, it was not obviously very good for me to think about my sister's death when writing the book. Why? And the reason well, is because would, it takes you away. It, takes, it, it makes you an emotional kind of person. Mm. Becomes you, whatever you do, you have to think about the sister who has died. So you have to clean that out of your mind. Because as a writer, you have to think logically, imaginatively. You have to stack your cards in a way that you know where, you know, uh, whatever card that you're looking for is. The paragraphs have to come one after the other. If you're emotional and tearful, none of these things are going to come. But there is a story that I must tell before I I answer that question fully. And that is, in 2012, when I was working on a novel, and because in parentheses, this is the second part of a trilogy. When I was working on the first part of the trilogy called Hiding in Plain Sight, I had written the draft of a novel which more or less foretold how my sister would die. And then, having written it, having written it, submitted it to my publishers, and the editor having written back and said how much he, she loved it, I nearly withdrew the book because my sister died while that book was being edited. Because my sister died in 2014. Yes, yes. It was something the 
my imagination seems to have created a situation in which something similar to the way my sister would die, another Somali who works for the United Nations and who does similar things as, as my sister and who was in Mogadishu, dies, is killed by terrorists. And then... The, 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 the trilogy that I'm working on, all three novels, yeah. are about Somalis in the diaspora. Right. That one was a Canadian Somali who was working in Mogadishu, whose children could not go and live in Mogadishu because it is not safe enough for the children. So they live in Nairobi. And he used to spend every three months, he would come and spend a month with his children who were going to the boarding school. So when I wrote that novel and my sister died in a way that was very similar to the way the character had died, I did consider withdrawing the book. And I did mention to my editor that guilt was flooring me on a daily basis. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go, and so on and so forth. And then I was told to leave the text as I wrote it and not to change it. Tell me, what what was the sense of guilt from? Was it that there was The sense of guilt was I had foretold it. Ah, yes. And although this other person was someone else's son, someone else's father or husband... This person was a person, yes. a Somali mm. living in Canada. My sister is a Somali or was a Somali living in the States because she was an American citizen. UNICEF, uh, she was working for UNICEF and she was a nutritionist, one of the few nutritionists in, uh, in uh, Afghanistan. And she was killed by the people whom she was helping, whose children she was looking after. Mm -hmm. And that was the irony of it, the tragedy of it. You know, it's amazing that that for someone who has gone through that emotionally, your your tone, as you say, is far from emotional in this novel. Perhaps that had been my expectation as I opened it. But but some some of your writing is quite dispassionate in some ways. Yes, and well, allows you a, some, a certain level of distance as a reader. I suppose I live in a world separate from the one I live in daily, and the reason is because first of all, I live alone for my writing, so to speak. Yes. I work daily. I write every single day, um, unless I'm in Johannesburg. Yes. Uh, live in Cape Town in the comfort of a place for writing uh, which used to serve as my writing studio when my former wife and children were around. Mm -hmm. So emotion does not work when you write. So you had to uh, somehow dispense with any aspect of emotionalism. But but why is that? Is it because you want this to be more of an intellectual rather than an emotional experience for your reader? Well, the emotion in creating the emotion in the reader is very different from creating, from me dwelling in emotion. Mm-hmm. You see, I have to live in a very logical world 
but to make sure that the emotion, whatever emotion I have, is injected into the text. Right. So that the person who reads it and who didn't have the pain of delivering the text will be able to enjoy it and be emotional about it. Let's get to some of the important aspects of your plot here. Um, You've got this this character, Mugdi, who is a, a former diplomat. His uh, his son's family uh, come over to, to live in, in Norway after his death, after he has uh, been involved in a suicide attack. And those initial interactions between him and his daughter-in-law, where, where they drive home or they drive her home and, and uh, you know, she refuses to, to wear the seatbelt in the car. And, and it, it almost sets... The tone for for a fairly fractious relationship that will follow between her view of the world and and the ideology of the society she's she's now begun to live in. Well, first of all, one has to go back a bit and remember that Mugdi and his wife Galo are at loggerheads over whether she should be allowed to come and whether the family should sponsor this woman and the children. Yes. Mugdi is absolutely against the idea because he says, I want to have nothing to do with a man who killed so many people. I wish to have nothing to do with his family and I do not wish to remember him. Mm-hmm. So his wife, you know, doing all kinds of tricky as wives and husbands, you know, spouses have a different way of you know, the bed situation, the uh, friendly, the tents and so on and so forth. Yes. In the end, because he, she was making, the wife was making the life impossible because she had promised her son, Dagane, she had promised the son that she would look after his wife yes. and stepchildren. Mm-hmm. And she used to send money to him, yes. you know, secretly. Right. Now, he... Uh, by way of atonement to her and by acceptance, actually says, I want to go and meet this woman and bring her home. And when he is bringing her home, that, as you point out, what happens, what happens is a foretelling of what, of what will happen mm. over the years that she will live. In Norway. Why? Because she says, I'm not going to wear wear seatbelt because whatever God has willed, Allah has willed, is going to happen. And that is not going to save me from death. Yes. Whereas he lives in a secular world. Right. In which which, uh, you wear the safety belt, number one, because it's a law in Norway. And then he eventually tells, because he uses an intermediary. Right, speaking through the sun. Speaking through the sun. And the reason is because in the new way of Islamic thinking, of religious thinking, a man and a woman don't talk to each other directly. Mm. And so he's using the sun. And then he says, I will be fined. And money... The fact that he will be fined yeah. makes her accept that she would wear 
It's, it's a fascinating. It's a yes. fascinating yes. moment. Yeah. I, I find her a fascinating character. She's she's monastic in some ways. She's obviously deeply conservative, but there also seems to be this fear of contamination. She has contamination from the society she's coming into, uh, uh, contamination from what she sees perhaps as the the permissiveness of the West. Yes, yes, and she is fearful for her children. Yeah. She thinks she is protective of them, and what you can tell from the first scene in which the boy talks about all kinds of things. I want to learn to speak Norwegian. Yes, what she wants, not to learn Norwegian. She wants him to become a scholar. Of the Quran, right. she wants him to go to a school where he can learn the Quran and so on and so forth. So there is, they are coming from different uh, perspectives, mm -hmm. and these are not likely to meet. And the reason is because nowhere is not the place where you go to a Quranic school. Yes, yes. If that is, uh, you know, and then the daughter in uh, uh, Mukdi's daughter, uh, Timiro is the one who explains to her that these are things that cannot be done yes. in Norway. And it's like, you know, learning a new language, learning a new way of life. And then eventually she will discover that the more protective you are of, you are of your children, the more likely you are to lose your children. Yes. The, the children as well are such thought-provoking characters because, you know, at, at first you see that, that uh, conservatism they have been indoctrinated with and then all of a sudden, they, once they have the realization of the society they're being in, uh, absorbed into, there are very many attractive things in the society which they want. Uh, you know, the, the little boy's uh, masochism, you could say, is, is tested. Uh, the, the, the little girl comes into a sense of her own being. Eventually, Eventually, but with difficulty. Yes. With difficulty yes. because, because at first she feels companionship only in the mother yes. and not yes. her brother, not the entire society. And then the change, the first change actually takes place, the first change in the girl, Safi, takes place when she is taken to a department store yes. where she is allowed to purchase any clothes that she wants. Mm. And you can actually see this in those, in the religionists, the Muslim religionists, you know, all these people who are uh, covered from head to foot in these dark, mournful dresses. All these people deep down would like beautiful things, silkware, and all these beautiful things that you would like. The only thing is they do not wear it openly in the street. Yes. They have to keep all this, you know, the negligees and the, these various things for the secret and the privacy of the home yeah. and the husband. Mm -hmm. so you see, so yeah. th these are some of the things that come out. And one of the first things the little girl does is she removes the pin. Yeah. You know that holds the 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 head uh, scarf on 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 her head. So these are not done slowly, and you know you test the water. You mm. you you put your foot in the water. See how warm it is, how cold, how comfortable and uncomfortable. And this is a novel that goes 
slowly very slowly yeah. and and but but i mean i suppose that is what makes it so so subtle so nuanced in terms of the way you approach this and it, it was a question i was going to come to later but perhaps now's as good a time as any to ask you 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 do not choose the most obviously dramatic settings like a refugee camp for example although we find out during the course of the book what happened to the children in there um you you choose uh, a quiet suburban setting that that in fact in a way becomes a kind of battleground but that is to draw the contrast the contrast is uh much clearer more visible yes. more nuanced if there is a contrast between a christian uh cross flagged country you know because in norway and all mm. the european most of the european countries have these crosses yes, on the flag which would also become important for the family yes. and so on and so forth yes. uh but if you had for example uh i did write a book about uh, refugees somali refugees and it's called yesterday tomorrow published in fact uh, the first year when i came uh a year after arriving in Cape Town. Oh. Uh it was published in 2000 right. uh, about refugees. Yeah. And I interviewed refugees as they fled the fighting in Mogadishu and I waited for them in Nairobi and then interviewed them fresh mm. from the fighting. Yes, yes. Fearful trauma traumatized uh worried about the next day and so on and so forth. Yes. So I didn't want to go to that one. So anyone who is interested in Somali refugees f- fresh from the killing killing fields can find it in that book published 19 years ago. Yes. But this one was to see how effective the contrast is. But the contrast also right in the middle of the book as you continue would come out when uh Breivik and this Perrin Breivik yes yes the right-wing terrorist neo-nazi mm-hmm. right-wing terrorist when his story comes out and he kills two young somalis yes. somali norwegians uh who die uh on the island of Utøy so these are some of the things that one must spare eventually to introduce them if you had set the novel in a refugee camp i would not have been allowed artistically mm-hmm. to bring in bravik yes yes so i have to find a reason to bring in bravik right but 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 also the absorption of of bravik into the book draws all kinds of inferences with terrorists from from various different walks of life from various different ideologies as well you 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 make it fairly clear i mean one of your characters actually says so you know they they're basically in some ways all the same they are the same the ra- the muslim radicals and the right wing people who committed you know these atrocities in new zealand are no different at all and then if you study what happened in afghanistan a day later and what happened in although there is more news you know newsworthy uh picture taking yes. uh photographs in in new zealand similar things are happening in a number of 
Islamic uh, uh, countries. And then you must also remember that the majority of the victims of the Islamic radical groups are Muslims. Yes. They're not, you know, the, the number of non-Muslims whom they kill is smaller mm. by comparison. You know, that, that's just one of the most artful things I think you've done in the book is actually paint the different shades of Islam that exist in the world. You, you perhaps have on the spectrum you've created uh, the, the very conservative Walia on the one side, perhaps uh, on the other side of the spectrum is, uh, is uh, um, uh, Mugdi. Mugdi, sorry. Um, and, and, you know, the other characters sit somewhere in the middle on that spectrum. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, thought, I thought that was such a useful way of demonstrating the lack of homogeny among people who subscribe to Islam, either religiously or culturally. Yes, yes, there is. They're very, very different. Uh, you find, for example, in Somalia, prior to nineteen, uh, from prior to two thousand six, yes, Somali women did not have anything approaching a veil. Mm, yes, the Somali dress, female dress is very different from this coverall uh, uh, body tents. And and we, I was brought up in a secular household. I was brought up in a secular household in which my father would walk into the room when the bigger boys, including myself, would come on a Friday to, you know, feast with the mother, the family, would be living in in different places. We would come and then my father would walk in and say, is anyone coming with me to the mosque? And we would all say, go pray for us. <laughs> and that was the kind of, you know, but because of the civil war and because people have to find reason for living yeah. and because people have to, they feel as if God is punishing them, they've become more religious. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you have to keep in mind is the Arab infiltration into Somali way of life. The Arabs have put in lots and lots of money and have taken some of these people to revolutionize, radicalize their minds, make them into persons who are no longer what they used to be as Somalis. Somalis were a tolerant people, tolerant of one another. Everybody did what they pleased. It is after the Wahhabism of Saudi Arabia. And after the fact that the Arabs have pumped a lot of money into Somalia, that you have found a group of people radical enough to set up uh, uh, the Islamic Courts Union, and in which they were chopping off hands of a thief who may have stolen a couple of sandwiches. I have a question on that note regarding people who've been raised in a particular way perhaps a Western secular society like Norway's, and then you, you go out of your way to paint uh, the, the childhood of, of Danica, who's, that, that has obviously been quite open, um, and, and yet this child is, e- is easily radicalized in time, and his views are, are so changed over the years, so much so that he eventually ends up as a suicide bomber. And as a reader, you, you begin to worry 
for the young people in that society, perhaps even Walia's two, two children, because it seems so unpredictable whether it's possible to, to turn children who seem fairly neutral in their outlook into radicals of any kind? Well, the first thing that happens is that the children don't live only in, the, in a secular home. They also are encouraged to go to the mosque, yes. which is okay as long as there is continuous communication between the parents and the child. But when, for some reason or another, the parents live their own lives. Yes, as Mugdi has done. As Mugdi has done. Yes. And the wife is very busy. And the boy is not being attended to on a daily basis, mm -hmm. being asked questions. What did you do yesterday? Whom did you meet yesterday? What did you talk about yesterday? Yes. Whenever these daily questions are not asked and the child is isolated in the company of a person who himself wants the comforts of Oslo or Johannesburg or London but who says this country is going to the dogs this is a Christian country your culture is Muslim you must save Islam and you must do this. You see, they don't do it to their own children. They do it to the children of other people, these imams. Mm -hmm. And they never commit suicide themselves. They're the ones who put these wrong ideas into the heads of these young people. Yeah. It is then that you have a problem. And the problem is a problem of communication. The problem is, you know, now... That's one. The other thing is, in Somalia, the entire family, the entire community is Somali, Muslim. Yes. The child would have cousins, sisters, and super cousins, and distant cousins, and so on and so forth. They would be participating in all this. Somebody always knows what the child is doing. Yes, yes. In that community. Right. And the reason is because the conti there's continuous communication between the members of that community. But when the family is isolated in an alien land like Oslo, mm. and the, 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 the parents are busy with their own daily lives, you know, uh, Mugdi is busy translating uh, a Norwegian novel into Somali. Yes. And his wife is busy, you know, doing all this. And then the boy would like actually to, would like to uh, uh, take a very contrasting view of his sister. His sister, Timiro, yes. is secular yes, and yes. anti-religionists uh, yes. and so on and so forth. That is where the problem is mm. because you don't want to be what your sister is doing. Yes. You see yourself in contrast as opposite to your to your sister, and that is where the problem is. Mm -hmm. That's intriguing, the the makeup of this family and the workings of this family. I, mean, I, I found it I, I, at the end of the novel. I could not decide whether it is possible to take individuals like Walia 
and, and fully integrate them into a, a secular society like Norway's, although we know that this is, this is what is being required in reality. Well, people when, people, when people and, and people have the tendency, especially Westerners have the tendency, or Christians actually have the tendency, Christian secularists have the tendency to say that Muslims cannot be integrated and so on and so forth. I usually remind them of the uh, small enclaves of Jewish communities in New York. Mm. Families that come from Austria or Germany and who till this day, despite living in New York for 70 years, do not speak English. Or Indian families, Punjabis and Madrasis, who go somewhere and live for the rest of their lives, but who never ever integrate. The only reason why this becomes problematic and people see this as a problem as if it never existed before it exists on a daily basis everywhere everywhere now that become the becomes the reason why it becomes a problem is because terrorism has come in Mm -hmm. terrorism has come in through people who think that they're thinking differently and usually i say to them if you think indifferently, as Timiro says to Walia, she says to her at some point, this is a country, you should not have come here. Yes. You should not have come here. And she says, there was no other place that would take me. Now, these are things, choices that people make. A refugee has no choice. Mm. A refugee goes wherever he or she once and then you cannot expect everyone to integrate do you see what i'm saying you cannot expect everyone to integrate there are many people who would integrate but there have to be benefit for you to integrate the children integrate why the girl integrates because uh, her mother wants her to marry some older man and in order to escape the marriage, the girl would do anything possible for her to, you know, not to marry. To to avoid it, yes. To avoid it. And the boy finds comfortable in, in, in a secular way of life. Why? Because he likes and loves Mugli, the old man, yes. and how the old man does. How, you know, when he takes him to, uh, uh, you know, the gym, yes. for example, yes. and sees all these naked men <laughs> this is something he'd never done before yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating as well the way you have have mixed the humor have woven humor into what are very serious situations often indeed uh, Nuruddin, you, you're a veteran novelist uh, your name is is up there in this country in particular with nadine gordema on the continent with chinua achebe you've been writing these amazing novels for the better part of half a century uh, which is i think which makes it all the more of a privilege for us to be hosting you in, thank in you Cape very Town, much you know yeah. um, but although you are Somali, the reality of Somalia's political situation means you may never be able to return to that country. Well, I go back. I go back often. I mean, I was there a year and a half ago to, how, how r- to write about, about what do you what do you see when you go home. Well, um, I see a country that is now recovering slowly, 
but it has taken a long time for it to recover. I see a country that has changed to the point where you do not even recognize it. Mm -hmm. I see a country that has produced refugees and I also see a country in which, and even if I were to talk about the Somali the, the diaspora, I see a group of Somali diaspora who are actually, for the first time, part of the 21st century because of the countries where they live in. The Somalis who live in Johannesburg and in Cape Town are part of the 21st century mentally. Yes. And the Somalis who live and do their daily whatever they're doing in Mogadishu are no longer living in that era. And the reason is because 13th century Islam seems to be imposing itself on them, mm -hmm. making them think the way they do. So it's been very good, I say sometimes, ironically. It's been very good for the country to have produced refugees so that there would be contrasts between the ones who stayed inside and who are still self-destructively living in a, a life that is, you know, unlivable, and the ones who have come outside, who have found comfort, and who can even become members of the, uh, you know, American Congress, or can become professors here and there. Yes. Things that they would not have been able to do if they had lived on in Somali. So this is the first time when Somalis have come outside, in a large, large scale. Yes. This is also another thing that people forget. This is the first time in the history of the world, as we know it, yes. when millions of Muslims have come into contact with millions and millions of Christians and Jews. And like an alien bit of food that you've eaten stuck in your teeth, there is discomfort. Yes. People who do not like each other, do not think alike, and who live in the same city, taking the same lift, the same train, daily, and some of whom would say, okay, I'm crazy, because I don't want, I don't like you. Mm. I want my culture to be the superior one. I want you to accept me, to integrate, and so on and so forth. So these are debates that are taking place for the first time in the world. And the world is not comfortable with it. The world does not know what to do with the debate, you know? Because if a Jewish person were to go to UAE or Kuwait or Saudi Arabia, he would have to keep quiet because he would be well, I don't know what would happen to him. Mm. If an Arab goes to, you know, Israel, you know what happens there. Mm. And then if a Muslim, uh, conservative Muslim goes to Norway or so on and so forth, some of the most terrible things are said about them. But people have to get used to one another. Indians were the first... No, I, I should actually add this, say this. Somalis were the first foreign black community in England. Mm. 
the first community yes. of Somalis in 1891, community of Somalis. And then came the 1960s, large groups of Indians, Indians from the Indian subcontinent, Pakistanis and so on and so forth. Now, the Indian person, sari-wearing person, is a common feature yes. in, in England everywhere. There was a time when I was a student in England when you didn't see as many Indians as you see them today. So people, when they get used to one another, you hope, optimistically, I would say, <laughs> you hope that they will get used to each other. Thank you, Nuruddin. So lovely having this conversation with you. And thank you for bringing us this beautiful book, North of Dawn, by Nuruddin Fan. For more journeys with Joe and Joseph, subscribe to this podcast at livepodcasts.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.